namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Aparuta de Sangamatasa Tawara Ye Sodawanta Bamunjan to Satang. So this morning, uh, Ajahn and Sokma took me on a morning ride to admire the scenery, beautiful autumn colors, and the monks here fit into the color scheme very well. <laughs> and contemplating the weather itself uh, here in new hampshire you you have very obvious seasonal changes and it's autumn time then winter and so you know then we we tend to have favorites about you know like if life could only be eternal spring or maybe it could stay autumn, the autumn colors could stay through the winter or whatever. We have wishes that we, when we like the season, we want to keep it. And when it, we don't like it, we want to get rid of it. So there's nothing wrong with this. I'm not uh, saying it's wrong, but it's something to observe. So being the witness, the Bhutto, the witness of the way it is, isn't just witnessing changing seasons, but being a witness to how your mind reacts to to the seasons that you're experiencing. So the real witness is not about looking at the changing seasons as impermanent, but seeing how the the conditioned reactions we have to the seasons, the experience of the season that we're in is, is like this. So it's, it's, this is witnessing the way it is in how we are conditioned to react or respond to the experience that we're having here and now. So in the Buddhist teaching, the second noble truth is the causes of suffering. It's very, very clearly stated in the fact that attachment to desire, this ignorant, is ignorance that leads to attachment to desire. And we can witness this, be the witness to it rather than the owner, the the victim or the person that's caught in the momentum of like or dislike or what we want or don't want. So the witness, the puto, is undifferentiated awareness. It's not, it's not focused on objects of the senses anymore, whether we like or don't like the, what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, or think, but we're the witness of our own thoughts, our own feelings, what we identify as me and mine, my personality, the, what I like, what I don't like. And that witness, then it doesn't like or dislike anything. It's pure conscious awareness, not, not uh, discriminating, not using discriminating words or concepts 
to describe experience in the present because undifferentiated consciousness doesn't have language. It's a witness to language. So, tanha is a, is a poly word for desire. And then you can be aware of one's own uh, reaction to the word desire in English. And my cultural context, my cultural conditioning was desire is uh, something you, when you first become a Buddhist monk, is something you've got to get rid of. You're living celibate life, you're living on alms, and uh, then, you know, then you want to get rid of desire. The idea of being content means annihilating desire, getting rid of it, is a personal interpretation. That takes the, the sense of me as a separate person wanting into observing desires that I want to get rid of if they're not very good. Like the desire, uh, sexual desire, when you're living celibate life, wanting to get rid of that uh, because it's, it's celibate, celibacy is, is stressed so highly in this tradition. Or wanting to get rid of anger, maybe, because when, when I first ordained with, uh, and went to live with Lung Kwan Cha, I, wa you know, I wanted to get rid of uh, anger and impatience and uh, these negative emotions because I considered them bad. I put the concept of bad, evil, or they, I wanted something I, evil or bad that I want to get rid of. And so that's the personal interpretation of experience. It's bad and I don't like it and I want to get rid of it. <clears throat> but when you really understand Dhamma as a Buddha propounded, then it's not getting rid of anything but understanding it. So that changes one's perspective because understanding is not personal. It's not about, I understand desire as a separate person, but I can observe desire. The witness to desire is not a person. It's pure conscious awareness. And we use the mantra puto as a kind of helpful guide to that <clears throat> realization. So this, this of course gives meaning to one's life because we are very conditioned by, uh, by our culture, by our generation, by the class we identify with, with the race that we identify with, by the gender, these are very strong sense of their mind and they're like this, so you want them to be like something else, or you want people to understand you, you want to be loved and you don't want to be rejected or excluded from society. And all these desires are part of a, a sense of, I'm, I'm this isolated, lonely person on planet Earth in this in this human form and I've got to survive somehow for a lifetime uh, in a society that is changing or isn't uh, what I really want all the time. It can, society can disappoint us, parents can disappoint us. There's so much to be disappointed by in the life experience. And all this is reinforced through the conditioning process of identity with the body. So the body is, you know, is like a newborn baby, as I have often said, it doesn't, isn't aware that it is a male or female 
baby. It learns that from the mother, usually, from the society, from the family it's born into. And then this is a desire realm that we're actually experiencing through these forms. These bodies are all desire forms. And when we identify with the body as, as our sole identity, we can create this separateness, this sense of separation. And we need, we want love, we want harmony, we want uh, all kinds of good uh, uh, conceptions, ideals that we can imagine. But life isn't about what I want as a person, what I'm conditioned, programmed to desire, but, but this opportunity in Buddhist meditation is to investigate, to know desire is wanting something sensual objects, there's gamadana, desire for sense pleasures, that we can relate to very easily. And then wanting to become bhavadana, wanting to become something, wanting to attain, wanting to achieve. And in monastic life, most of us start out wanting to get rid of our defilements and achieve enlightenment. Realize Nibbana, when we ordain as bhikkhus, we, to, the whole purpose in, in the ordination procedure is to realize Nibbana. What is that? What is, what is Nibbana or the realization of Nibbana? But it sounds like the very best you can imagine. And naturally we desire it as, a, as we're conditioned to do so. We want the best and we don't want the worst. And then we're conditioned through family training, through social training, through education, to, through reward and punishment. So this experience of a sensual form on planet Earth is, is uh, conditioned to be rewarded when it's good and punished when it's bad. If you get good grades in school, you're rewarded. If you fail, you're punished. And living life in general, the legal systems of various societies are about reward and punishment. So then the desire to get rid of desire is a subtle one because we, you know, the idea from the, especially from a Western uh, conditioned mind is to, is to get rid of desire because it has this negative connotation as, as an obstacle, something bad, something evil, something unwholesome. And so we can meditate, practicing meditation, various styles of meditation are for tranquility, for peace, through supporting peaceful conditions. But life for most of us isn't going to be a totally peaceful experience. Because the conditions realm that we're experiencing through the body, through the senses, is changing, just like autumn changes to winter and winter to spring and then to summer, everything is in the inexorable changingness that is called samsara or the world that we, we believe is our reality. So what is reality? What is real? What is really real? Because the real world for most people is the, what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, is our bodies, is, is our reality. What we think, what we hold in biases and prejudices in views and opinions is, is our reality. And so reality is, is not the same for everybody. 
So on the condition level, we're all different. You know, so we have different uh, karmic conditions that we inherit from our parents, from our ancestors, through the physical forms that we identify with. We, we're different in terms of uh, how we react to, to experience praise and blame, success and failure. So in the level of, of conditions, we're all different. And yet, you know, one would like us to be all the same on the condition level, to all vote for the, the right person to have what's right in our society. We can imagine righteousness, goodness as, a, as an image of perfection where everybody gets along and everybody's content and happy and respecting the environment and on and on like that. We can imagine, create images of perfection But when you investigate and witness the way things are, that's not the way we experience life. It's not perfect. The conditioned realm cannot be perfect in the way that we want it to, because its very nature is transient, changing, impermanent. And you can't, you know, you can create images of a, a constant, perfect society, a utopian society, where everything is just and fair and equal and right and good and everybody's trustworthy is, is an ideal, a beautiful ideal. But is that the way you are? Can you be perfect as a as a sensory form with the uh, with the nature of this realm that we're experiencing which is all about desire when we when we investigate the senses the what well, the eyes the vision we see objects that are attractive we want them we can see objects that are ugly and we don't want them and that's that's natural to want beautiful, want beauty, and not want things to be ugly. But in the terms of experience, witnessing experience, that you can't just witness beauty as a permanent visual object, because day changes into night, autumn changes into winter, and people get old and. And uh, there's all kinds of uh, conditions that we ha cannot control or beyond our ability to, to rectify or, or change in any direct way. But when we understand the nature of phenomena is impermanent, and that understanding is not a belief anymore. It's not like... As Buddhists, we're expected to believe in impermanency, but we witness it. Like the second noble truth is all about witnessing the causes, three kinds of desire. Witnessing, not getting rid of desire, but understanding that it's like this. Wanting to attain Nibbana is like this. Should, should, am I trying to say we shouldn't attain Nibbana, we shouldn't want to attain Nibbana, or am I saying attain, want, desire to attain Nibbana or complete perfect enlightenment and freedom from birth and death is like this? That's the witness. That's the puto. That's the escape hatch that's available to all of us as individual human beings. So we don't get rid of it. We understand it. We understand the impermanent nature of phenomena, what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think. The real world that we once 
wanted to uh, manipulate, make it fit an ideal we might, beautiful ideal we might have about it. But even with best intentions, with good intentions, we cannot change changing this into perfection because it's not meant to be perfect. Change is like this. Growing old is like this. When whatever ailments, whatever sicknesses that we experience are the way they are. And we'd like to get rid of illness, get rid of cancer, get rid of COVID, uh, get rid of AIDS, get rid of all these diseases that we hope modern science will eventually find a permanent cure and we'll be able to annihilate sickness, old age, and maybe death is a wish never to be fulfilled. Because then we ask ourselves, are we really are we really just a human form? Am I really this this body sitting here? Is this my all that I am is is just a, a, an aging old man? And uh, then you know, in terms of the personality, which is conditioned when you're young, you know, you don't want to be old. And so, you know, old age can be seen as, as something to dread or fear or, or try to prevent. Because on a personal level, who wants to get sick or get old or be disabled in any way? You know, so that's the desire to get rid of things, get rid of sickness get rid of disease, get rid of pandemics. And that is something that we also witness, the wanting to get rid of all diseases, find cures for every ailment, is, uh, is a, you know, a, a noble wish. You know, on a personal level, we all want to get rid of illness. But on the personal level, that's how we're conditioned, because we're so identified with the body that does get old, get sick, and die. And that means when we think of, you know, that uh, I'm going to die, that can be quite a frightening thought. Or even though we know that everybody is going to die, I mean that's a we don't have to expound on that because we know that instinctually. But as a perception, getting old and dying, losing your loved ones, separation from the loved, we don't want that. We want union with the loved, a kind of permanent union with those we love and keep them alive as long as we can as long as we can manage, because death is, has such a final tone to it. What happens when somebody dies? If we're, if we're just bodies, you know, if we're just these forms, these sensory forms with eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and physical body and a brain that thinks, And that can change. Those are all vulnerable, changing conditions that are subject to other conditions that are beyond our control. But what is stable then? What are you really if, you're, if the Buddha is saying you're not the body? So in the Buddha's teaching, he's stressing anatta, non-self. Non you're not the body. I'm not this body. This body is like this. And then in this way, the, the gender of the body, the, the race, the age are accepted for what they are because 
It's the natural way of change that is part of this sensory realm that we're experiencing, that we cling to. And that clinging creates fear. Because we cling to when we're, our personalities are formed when we're young, in our youth. When we're, when we look young, when, when, you know, and when we come from different family backgrounds, different experiences, from different religious backgrounds that we, we can believe in or reject. But what is beyond religion and culture and environment and experience is is awareness, conscious awareness. And this is about here and now, apparent here and now. And this is non-personal. When you begin to understand the causes of suffering, the three kinds of desire, you... The insight is you have this insight of letting go of the causes, which is not annihilation, is not getting rid of the causes, because this realm is all about desire and change, about autumn and winter, about youth, about middle age, old age, and death. And so this is, is this our destiny? Is this our fate? And what happens when we die? You know, will we, having been a monk for so many years, will I, will I go to some kind of romantic heaven? Or uh, I've, I've had insights, so maybe I'll realize Nibbana, speculate. I should be rewarded for living this kind of life as a person. <laughs> And what is all that? That is thinking again. It's, it's my personality imagining uh, the possibilities of what happens when this body passes away. So the witness isn't about birth and death. So that is transcending the conditioned realm, it isn't getting rid of it. It's not that the conditioned realm is anything that it should be different than what it is, but it is the way it is. It's like this. And then with that, we feel a sense of contentment with, with the, the bodies we have, with the uh, personalities. We're not so critical or trying to change everything or blaming others and and criticizing and and going on and on trying to to find a way you know try what where do i belong where do i fit in what's the meaning of life what's the purpose of life all these questions that are quite profound in their way. What is the meaning of life? And, and to us, life is the conditioned realm. What is the meaning of it? What is the meaning of being born as a male or a female? Are we meant for, we have a destiny, a fate from the past? Or what is the purpose of all this? What is the purpose of monastic life? What is the purpose of democracy and the real meaning of being an American? And what's the purpose of, and the meaning? Purpose and meaning are important words in our vocabulary. And we, we're conditioned for that. That's part of the social, cultural conditioning. In the United States, it's it's a very idealistic country. So you have, you know, you, it was established as an ideal country, as a democracy. So it's, it's you know, we 
beautiful ideal. Democracy can be interpreted in very beautiful terms where everything's fair and just. Everybody has, has a say in, the, in what goes on and nobody's looked down on. There's no prejudices, biases. We work things out together in harmony. These are beautiful concepts. But as we all know, in the present situation, that that's not the way it works. Because as much as we create beautiful ideas, the inevitable changingness of conditioned phenomena is beyond our control. Like a permanent autumn day with the sun shining on all the colorful leaves is, uh, is beautiful to the eye. So we would like to keep it that way. But in a few days, all those leaves will be on the ground. <laughs> and then we, we think, oh, remember the autumn? That was really nice. And then uh, winter for, you know, the trees don't have any leaves and everything looks barren and cold. And if we still remember autumn or spring or summer, then winter, we create a lot of summer. We don't want winter. We don't want it to be like this. But the witness, the Puto, is aware of wanting and not wanting. So what is it that's aware of desire is not a desire. One desire can't observe another desire. So the conditioned realm can't recognize itself. It's beyond its ability. It has language, it has, we have brains, we have intellect, we can imagine, create images of perfection. And then we create ourselves as separate, or special people, individuals who want to be special, or we just think of ordinary. But whatever we perceive ourselves to be as a form, as a condition, we're not that. That's not what we really are. And so the Buddha never asks us to believe this as a doctrine. It's not doctrinal uh, teaching. The Four Noble Truths are not Buddhist doctrines. They're truths to be realized for yourself, starting with suffering, the causes of suffering, the end of suffering, and the way to live one's life in this separate form without creating suffering around the way, the changingness that we inevitably experience. Now, the, the, one of the last fetters that we let go of, the very last one is avicca, or ignorance. And this ignorance, and Pali word is avicca, or avidya in Sanskrit, is the kind of ingrained belief that we, that of the real world as what we see here, smell, taste, touch, of ourselves as, as citizens of a society and as Buddhists or Christians or whatever. The, the real world is the world of, of uh, you know, with political systems that we agree with or don't agree with. The real world is about, uh, the position of men and position of women in the society about fairness and justice or about survival at any cost, about gaining power. Power is a very attractive force in, in our lives to have power, to control things, to be famous, to be a celebrity, and oftentimes teenage ideals to become somebody special, somebody recognized, somebody that others admire. These are, 
you know, creations of modern life where in third world societies, more people are, you know, don't have that, aren't conditioned to, to expect that from life. Except now that the mass media gives those kind of images, those kind of impressions are available to becoming somebody special. The first one to reach the top of the highest mountain on the planet or (laughs) become a football champion or a film star are still, you know, ideal or attractive goals that we want to achieve. You don't want to be just a mediocre movie star or one that nobody gets their name and nobody recognizes their picture or their name on a screen. Or just an average football player. (laughs) So you, you want to you know, to be the champion. So these are, these are goals held up by modern society, uh, conditioned into us. To be, because in some way, we all feel special in some way because we are all unique in our conditioned identities. There's no two human beings the same. So we have, you know, on the condition realm, it's always about change. And, and so on the condition realm, you can't, you know, in talking about equality as an ideal, but the very nature of phenomena is, is inequality, about differences. That's the way it is. The condition realm isn't about equal conditions, but changing conditions. So on the level, we can't all become contented citizens, law-keeping citizens of a democratic society just as a, as a command or as a, a way of being educated because that's been attempted when we look at the world, you know, in, in my lifetime, the the communist goal was was to make everything the same. Everybody's equal, no rich, no poor. The wealth is shared equally among everybody. It's, it's an ideal. Thought up in the British Library by Karl Marx. <laughs> and... <laughs> And it's a beautiful ideal, even though in American terms, it's our enemy, communists are our enemy. But in terms of the ideal of it, you can see it is very attractive intellectually because it, it's where everything is equalized and fair. But then in the Soviet experience, it was the means to make it, to force equality on condition phenomena on a mass population was force. So, you know, through forcing people to be equal, that's impossible. Forcing everybody to think alike, to agree, and to be content, trying to, you should be content with your life is, a, is an idea. But what is discontent about? And are we discontented that we're not contented? So, you know, then we hold up contentment as an ideal for the monastic life. Are all the monks absolutely content with their lives here, with the four requisites allowed, with the community? You know, as you should be content is the advice. You know, it's good advice. (laughs) But discontentment is like this. You know, so in 
monastic training, according to Lung Pao Cha's emphasis on conscious awareness, on mindfulness, he didn't ask me to be content with everything, but to be the witness to discontentment. Now that's possible. I can do that. Because life was very different, changing from life in uh, California to life in in uh, Wat Pa Pong in Northeast Thailand, 1967. It was changing from one kind of indulgent life of, of sensual experience into very conforming obedient style uh, of training in a completely different culture, in a different society. So I knew I should be content and I wanted to be content. Contentment was an ideal I wanted. But I had to learn what the suffering of attachment to discontentment or the desire to get rid of discontentment. Now that's what we call conscious awareness of the way it is. Because on the ideal level, I'm very idealistic as a person. I want equality and fairness and justice and, and equal opportunity and, and uh, all the very best words that you can think that you can create in your brain. They're attractive to me. But in terms of experience, there's a lot to be discontented about. Because this realm that we're living in, that we attach to, that we grasp out of ignorance, is changing. And it's not, it, even if we have moments, moments of contentment and peace and tranquility, if that basic delusion of a separate self is still operating, if there's still a vicha or ignorance and clinging, then we're conditioned to do that. We can't sustain uh, external conditions, even though we might experience them in moments, very precious moments of our lives. And so we cling to the memories of good meditation. Like people say, I had a really good meditation. I went to the Saturday class in Temple Forest Monastery and I really had a good meditation. And then next Saturday they come and they have a bad meditation. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and they might blame the teacher or <laughs> the weather or whatever, but, but, but it's good and bad meditation. That's about a memory. A good meditation is like a memory. And then a bad meditation is a memory. So good and bad are words that come and go and change and memories. <coughs> But if we cling to the idea, I want good meditation every time I meditate, then, you know, we find out, you know, like I was very much uh, liking hermetic practice, being alone, where I wasn't, didn't have to associate with others. And I could, uh, you know, through concentration practices, attain tranquility. And I, you know, they could, and then if something disrupted that tranquility, I'd feel upset or angry. And transistors, radio, transistor radios came into uh, the common mind of, of Isan farmers at the time I was at Wat Bananachar. And, uh, and so then, 
the monks used to complain because the farmers would attach these transistor radios to the horns of the buffalo. <laughs> And the, and the one on our top was surrounded by rice fields, rice paddies, and it disturbed my peace. <laughs> Another incident was, I'd been in Thailand so many years, like 10 years, and, and uh, in the village of Bung Wai, which wasn't that far away from the monastery, uh, they have these medicine sellers come by where they they sell medicine to the villagers and they have loudspeaker systems and usually they played uh, pop music from Thai Thai pop music <laughs> and uh, I didn't particularly like it <laughs> but then one day I was sitting in the sala at Wat Nanachat, it was just a grassroof lean-to type sala at the time. And the, I heard this song, this Western pop song called, Tell Laura I Love Her. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a very sad story. <laughs> And I started crying. <laughs> and then the irony of that, that was written in one of the books, I think, Jitamiweka. And when I went to, when we established Amaravati, we'd have um, Saturday afternoon workshops. And one day, the, the singer that made Tell Laura I Love Her popular came to the workshop. <laughs> Frank, uh, Ricky Valance, I mean. <laughs> and he wanted to learn Buddhist meditation. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows where the jokers above are going, <laughs> planning for us. But this avicca or ignorance is basically the illusion that we create about ourselves as a physical body and what we think and feel, our emotions are very real for us. So some people are very emotional, and others try to control their emotions. And so, you know, we, we don't, you know, I didn't want the monks to see me crying over a silly <laughs> pop song. <laughs> so I could feel the desire to, you know, to not cry, but it was, it's a sad story. And the last words of this poor Motorcyclist was tell Laura I love her. <laughs> and sadness is like that. It's we cry when things are sad. And when we see that as personal, then we, you know, like a, the American ideal of masculinity is men don't cry. <laughs> then you try to live up to the to the image of what a man is without being aware of what you're doing. It becomes a habit of just of control, trying to not feel emotions. Emotions are weak and, and you don't want to be called an emotional person. So all this is conditioning. And uh, and we're witnessing it. We're not trying to become, so as Buddhist monks, we never cry. Because that ideal already, part of our cultural background is men, we don't cry. But then, especially my generation, I think the younger generation is allowed to cry. <laughs> but my generation was to be a really tough, unemotional man was the ideal. 
then the bhikkhu ideal is very beautiful, but it is an ideal. And the, then we reflect on the conditions we're actually feeling if we don't feel content with the four requisites, if we do feel lust or greed or, uh, or we get angry and upset and feel jealous or frightened, these are emotions that are part of this sensual realm for men and women, because the you know these forms, these male female forms, the purpose is for procreation and survival. It's very basic. The forms themselves, why there is male and female to promote the species and to survive in in the jungle. So this is this is the mammalian karma that we share with with all the animal kingdom. But as human beings, we have can reflect on this conditioning. We're not just bound and limited to be the conditions that we're experiencing, but we can actually witness the conditions from the position of Pluto or awareness. It's like this. It's not judgmental or telling you what's right or wrong, but it is aware that Anger is like this, greed is like this, fear is like this. And then if you trust that awareness, then you have the insight into letting go of the causes of it, of desire. Letting go isn't getting rid of desire or annihilating anything. It's just a relaxed like letting go is, you know, when you're holding your fists like this, it, you're creating a lot of tension. And then if you let go, you don't get rid of the hand or the fist, but you, you relax the hand, it's as simple as that. Letting life happen to us in the way we're living, it's not a, you know, it's not just a kind of passive uh, acceptance of fate, but it's a whole attitude towards wisely reflecting and not creating problems over the way things are. So this word avicca, ignorance, and it's not about not having an education or not having studied physics and chemistry and philosophy. Ignorance, in this case, vicha, is ignorant of Dhamma, the way it is, the ultimate reality. So I offer this as a reflection.